And here we go. What's going on, people? Welcome back to the Uncensored Critic podcast. Today is a very special day for me because I'm joined by a teaching fellow at GSA who I have to say, in no other words, is at simply the top of his game. And it's a genuine privilege to be speaking to him today. And of course, my guest today is Benjamin Fury. And I got your surname right there, didn't I? You've probably had you did. many kinds of variations of your name over the years. Because <laughs> we were saying just before we came on, I was thinking, is it, is it Furry? Is it, is it, is it Furry? What, what, what is it? So like, yeah, you just, you're just going to have to ask him. And thankfully, I've discovered it's Fury, as in not as, like Tyson Fury, but obviously without the boxing bit. So... That's pretty good. Uh, so yeah, so let's introduce Ben. So uh, so yeah, I had the privilege of actually being taught by Ben for a month when I was at GSA on the MA acting course, but I've since deferred my studies and I will be going back uh, later in the year Well, I will link up with you again. So Ben's qualifications include an MA in Modern Drama Studies from the University of College Dublin, a PG Diploma in Voice Studies from the Central School of Speech and Drama, and a little bit of background about Ben and his quite very busy career up to this point is uh, right up right up until his return to the UK in 2019 he was one of the leading dialect voice text coaches in the US with over 24 years experience as a coach consultant and teacher now based in London and the US he has worked over 125 theatre productions including 20 on Broadway uh, he has spent many days on TV sets and film sets and ADR studios and on Skype, FaceTime, doing production prep and rehearsal, either to groups or one-to-one. He has coached a number of Tony and other award-winning productions, including Billy Elliot, Inc., The Curious Incident of the Dog in the Nighttime, Matilda, The Last Ship, A Gentleman's Guide to Love and Murder, and the immersive Sweeney Todd, The Demon Barber of Fleet Street. He has coached seven actors to Tony Awards. Uh, that includes Greg Jabara for Billy Elliot, Gabrielle Ebert for Matilda, Michael Arnoff for Oslo, Alex Sharp for Curious Incident, and three and the other three Billy Elliots. He has worked with four Matildas who won special Tony Awards for Excellence and with many actors on their off-Broadway and regional award-winning roles. And his credits continue. He trained as a voice text and accent dialect teacher and coach on the world-renowned Round voice studies program from the Royal Central School of Speech and Drama. After graduating, he moved to Dublin, where he taught at the Gaty School of Acting and coached productions at the Gate Theatre and elsewhere for three years. He then relocated to the US, where he began teaching and coaching uh, at the world-ranked BFA program and the School of Drama for the University of North Carolina School of the Arts in Salem. He spent nine years there. In 2008, he began working on Broadway production of Billy Elliot, as well as other shows on and off Broadway. He moved to New York in 2010, where he worked as a freelance voice text, accent dialect coach until the summer of 2019, before he came back to the UK shores. His, his work on TV has also covered shows such as Elementary and on James Gray's film, The Lost of City Z. He's been a dialect consultant for John Noble and Brian F. O'Brien, and many of other TV and film projects. And as a native Brit and dual citizenship, he's worked, he's worked in Ireland, the UK, the US, and was the go-to coach for British and Irish dialects over in the US and has taught other accents such as African, European, Australasian, and Asian. He has taught classes both in Europe, the US, at Juilliard College, University of, University of Carolina, the Gacy School of Acting, Ulvik New Voices workshops in New York City, Two River Theatre, and the Guthrie Theatre, in Minnesota. So my goodness, you've been a busy man, my friend. 
I was looking around thinking, who is this person? I need to meet him. I need to talk to this guy. My goodness, you've done a lot of work. It, it always surprises me when people talk, when people introduce me and go through that. I'm going, dear God, it's a lot of stuff. <laughs> it is a lot of stuff. I was thinking at one point, I was thinking, oh my goodness, this is, I don't know. I was thinking, right, we're going to finish that. Okay, that's all we have time for today. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but wow, I mean, that's an incredible body of work you've got working over the UK, Ireland, and the US as well. And I suppose the a question to kick off today really is where did this all start? Where did an interest in voice, dialects, and the 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 need to work with the voice? Where did it all start for you? Where did it come from? Um I trained as an actor way back in the last century, and one of the classes I enjoyed most was voice, but mm. um left acting school, I worked fairly consistently for a few years, probably about 90% of the time, which is which was nice to do. Um, I began to, I got to a stage where I actually wasn't enjoying the work that much because it's a business and begin when, when you get out there, you're just not earning a lot of money. Mm. Um, <clears throat> and I sort of started getting to, I began to get depressed at the jobs I was doing in, in between the acting work. So I took some time off to sort of refocus and go, what, 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 what else can I do? Or what can I do more consistently as a side thing? Um, as part of that, I worked at a theme park and I taught water skiing. Oh. And I began to realize, oh, I can teach. So then that then brought me into, okay, well, um, what can I teach in theater? And I enjoyed voice and accents when I, when I was training as an actor. And when I was an actor, and I thought there was one course where you can train at, at doing that, which was at the Central School and still is at the Central School. Mm. And so I did that course. Um, and that was the beginning. So after that, I went to Ireland and taught for three years and began coaching productions. And coaching productions was something I was always interested in when I was training as a voice teacher. So I went to Ireland, then I went to Texas, and then University of North Carolina, and I just began to do more and more of the teaching and the coaching. Uh, what was your experience of um, Juilliard? Because we hear we hear so much about yeah. amazing graduates from there. You know, the Val Kimmels and um, mm -hmm. well, I was going to say Kevin Spacey, but we're probably probably best not talk about him. But um, um, but it's it's got some incredible um, graduates from there. What was it like working at possibly? one of the, probably one of the most famous drama schools in the world besides RADA and, and GSA? Um, <laughs> um, it, is actually in, it was actually interesting, having been at North Carolina for a long time, and North Carolina was one of the top three BFA programs for acting in the US as well. So it wasn't a big leap up in um, the level of students I was working with. The difference I think at Juilliard it's had a very set training program for a long time. And what was nice was they had somebody who was taking a sabbatical <coughs> and the head of voice said, oh, would you like to come and teach for us? I said, love to, what, what do you want me to do? And they said, what would you like to do? Which is almost unheard of. Um, so I ended up, I actually ended up teaching them an accent class because they didn't have one, which, which was a surprise. Um, they have really good, um, speech classes in the US 
there tends to be a separation between voice and speech. You do, you, if you do do speech classes, which is diction, which is articulation, and sometimes it's learning what we call a professional accent. Um, I mean, a professional accent is basically if, say, in the in the US or, or in the UK, you come from somewhere which has a regional sound, you can pick up a professional accent and choose to use it when um, when you choose to use it, but always have your own voice. I always use, um, <coughs> pardon me, David Tennant as an example. Mm. When he's in an interview, he is Scottish. Yes. That's him. He's Very And when he, do, when he does his po podcast, but he can flip into standard British RP without thinking. Mm. And that's what sort of the Juilliard training people, certainly now that that's one of the things that they do is they can flip from one to the other quite easily. Um, I mean, the level of teaching was very good because everyone there was working outside. Mm. They were doing work in the professional theater within New York. The voice, the, the voice people, they were coaching Broadway shows as well. So sort of, they were doing a lot of professional work and being able to bring that sensibility into the classroom is actually a really useful thing to be able to do. Mm. That's incredible. I mean, it's, it's so it's so unique to have that kind of insight into Juilliard and just find out. I mean, the one thing you were saying there about they didn't have an accent class. I mean, that was I was a little taken aback by that. How could they not have an accent class at, at Juilliard? And, um, oh, I they, think just create this. This would be this would that be great. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think they felt that um, the, the 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 classes they were being given in the first and second year in they did a lot of IPA phonetics. Mm -hmm. They did a lot of work on this standard accent. So they'd had a lot of work with sound and looking at things like that. And I think they felt that that work then coupled with the work they do in student productions would be enough. Mm. Um, and, it, and they didn't notice the lack of it until I came along. I think I did a class and then I worked with, that was with third years and then worked with fourth years because both the undergrad and grad at Juilliard, they're both four year courses. Mm -hmm. um, and I worked with the third years in the class and then the fourth years when I was coaching a production and the fourth years complained to the, to the why didn't we get an accent class? <laughs> so they've now got an accent class. So I've, I've given it back to them. Good. <laughs> um, I mean, one, um, also one thing though about Juilliard is because um, they are so um, they are, what in the states are called, they are very well endowed, which means they have a lot of money to use for scholarships, to use for uh, bursaries and other things. The classes are quite small. Mm. Between the between the undergrad and the grad class, it's 16 to 18 people as in total. So it's like oh, nine undergrads, nine grads. So it's it's a, that was the that's one of the biggest differences. It's a small class. Yeah. Um, so that, that brings me on to something um, when you said about that natural standard English in a way, and I wondered if you had, a, had an opinion on this, you know, um, I couldn't help but notice that now that things are, you know, the theatres are slowly coming back to normal now, thank, mm -hmm. thank, thank God, really, that things are showing signs of, of recovering yeah. now. Um, you know, Ian McKellen at this very moment in time is in Windsor at the moment doing, doing Hamlet. Yeah. I don't know how they're going to do that, but good luck to him. But uh, yeah, but I would love to see it anyway. But yeah, he was mm -hmm. uh, him uh, as an actor himself, him, Derek Jacobi, um, and that sort of generation of actors from the 50s and 60s. 
who were born, um, well, Derek Jaffrey was born in, in London, so a bit of a mm-hmm. London accent, but for Ian McKellen, who was born in the North and had a very strong Northern accent and was told that like, if you want to be in the classical theatre, or if you want to be in the theatre, you, mm-hmm. you have to, you, you, you've got to get rid of that voice. You've got to get rid of your natural voice and sound neutral standard English. And, you know, I think now people are encouraged to hold on to their, to their accents a lot more compared mm-hmm. to like, beforehand. I mean, what's your opinion of, of that decision to take take out like the natural voice and then have neutral standard English in there. Do you think that was kind of a robbery of the voice or kind of what was expected at the time? Um, I, th- I think probably more at the time, more things were written to be spoken with RP than there are now. Mm. I think nowadays I think writers are writing for regional voices. They're writing for, um, they're writing for all sorts of different things. Um, I think people need to be able to do some sort of neutral standard English or RP or whatever we're going to call it these days. Because um, it's one of those terms that's constantly changing. Um, be just because there is still enough work that's out there that will call for that. Um, and it can be a choice for people not to to do that accent. Mm. Um, there are, I was listening to a wonderful interview, which I, I was searching for something online and I found this interview with, I think, if I'm, I hope I'm getting his name right, Matthew Reese, who's a Welsh actor, been working in the US a lot. Mm. And he was talking to the American presenter about accents and he think it was rather he went to. And I'm not going to go away and look all this up afterwards going, oh, God, did I get it right? Um, but he was talking about he couldn't learn RP. He couldn't. He came, from, he, he came from a village in Wales, and that was at a time when all the mine, all the mines were being closed and all the miners were being put out of work. Yeah. And he, his young brain at that time equated RP with the people who were closing down his village. So psychologically, even though I think he tried, he couldn't do it. And I found the same in Ireland, where politically, um, the Brits, it's a really delicate subject. And there were some students who really wanted to learn RP because it meant, well, I might be able to work in England, both as an Irish actor, but also as an actor who can do, who can sound British. But they could not, they could not shift into learning RP as an accent. Mm. And I think it was psychological. I think it was psychological. It was all about oppression. It's all about politics of voice. So I think it's important for people to to go through the discussion with themselves. Do I want to learn this other accent? Um, There's an awful lot of work out there for my my own voice now. And there really is. If you Mm. listen to the trails and promos between programmes now all across British TV channels, so much of it is in regional British and Irish accents. Mm. You, you hear RP much, much less in that sort of role. Ah, commercials, adverts, that so many of them are in regional sounds. Yeah. I, I mean, that'd be a really good uh, title for a book, The Politics of Voice and like the, <laughs> the psychological aspects of it as yeah. well. That's it. You know, I mean, and, and there are many people who've written about the politics of this particular accent or African-American vernacular English or RP. Um, and there's a book now, I think it's Life After RP. Mm, so life After RP. Yeah. 
<laughs> I think there will be a lot. And also, I think, you know, I don't I don't want to shift into politics, but I'll just touch mm -hmm. on it ever so slightly. Um, I think, you know, RP at the moment being spoken by our illustrious prime minister at the moment <laughs> about a lot of things, you know, uh, and the decisions that he's taken and then the last you know month well, month and a half year and a half of um of our lives and what we've all been through you know and we hear that voice and we think oh is this like a voice of oppression that voice saying coming in saying like enjoy your freedoms now while they last because yeah. in two weeks we're going to be back to what you're going to be back to where you were before and I think that and whenever Boris's like voice comes on the radio now and you know, I've seen this like in public or at home, and mm -hmm. there's a, there is a genuine psych, well, philosophical, not philosophical, but there's a there's a physical, emotional, psychological reaction to a voice, and he can just come on and just say things like, "We're doing everything we can to keep everybody safe," yeah. and but you hear that one sentence, and you're immediately thinking, "You have no clue what you're doing. We don't trust you." Yeah, fuck off. <laughs> we don't, we don't, yeah. You know, excuse my French, but you know, but that is, we don't care about what you said because like they have built up this reputation of lies, and you know, and I think that that sort of feeds very nicely into how you train actors to acquire a certain tone of voice, and we, and particularly when, I suppose, around the sort of darker side when they're when a character is trying to tell a lie, in a way, and mm -hmm. and even though it is a dark subject. I find that when people tell lies, there is, they try and put like an innocent tone on it at first. And it was like, just like, it's like you could say something like, did you, did you eat that last biscuit? And you'd be like, no, when actually yeah. you did. And there's an interesting juxtaposition there between like innocence, but yeah, you're burying the lie underneath. Is that, is that a conversation that you have in a lot of detail when you work with actors who work on scenes like that when there's something underneath like, like if you were doing Macbeth and you were saying you know and you know Lady Macbeth has that speech where she says you know I would have plucked the gums plucked it's my nipple from its from its yes. gums and and saying that and you know be the no, no and where she has that wonderful line where she says you know look like the innocent flower but be the yep. serpent under it you know is that a conversation you have a lot from a technical perspective when you work with actors work on scenes like that um only if they bring it up yeah and only if only if it becomes then an issue either they bring it up or the director says well i want this particular vocal choice i want it to sound as if they're telling a lie and then we'll work out well how how do we do that Often, though, with I mean, certainly with things like Macbeth, when it's when it's someone's telling an out and out lie, I, what I tend to say to people is just trust that the audience have followed everything else that's been going on, because then the lie is obvious. The lie is obvious from the situation in the scene context, and therefore don't even try try and tell us it's a lie. You've got to try and convince us it's the truth, yeah. and and that, and that's the th that's the thing often with liars is. Or people who tell a lot of lies is they've found that if they say things with enough conviction that it's the truth and then then we get into politics if you say something that's a lie but say it often enough it then becomes the truth it's that re repetition of the lie but said with conviction as if it's the same as um 
the sky's black. If you repeat it often enough, people will, people will hear the words and then it's the context of the words that the audience or the scene partner or the characters, other characters take apart the words and the text to work out it's a lie. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, if, if, if someone was to tell a lie and it was, there's, there's ways of doing it with pitch and you can just play with, no, absolutely not, no, and just maybe use too much pitch. Um, there, I mean, there are certainly ways of doing it, but it's to get the effect that the actor wants and say, I want to do, do this, but I'm not sure how, then I'll do that. Or the director says, well, I, I'd like this sort of mood in the scene. How can we work on that with the actor? We can play with pitch. Certainly with British accents, we can play with pitch. Yeah, because we have a, a vast, I, I didn't realize that, you know, we have quite a vast range of pitches at times, you know. Yeah. People, you know, I think us and Americans, are, we can be a bit monotonal sometimes and just speak at the same level the whole time. But we we have a we do have a, like a good range of pitch, you know, the, for British actors, don't we? Yeah, yeah, and because most British accents will stress important words and syllables using mostly pitch. Most American accents, and this is a big generalization for both sides of the pond, will stress with volume and pitch. To be or not to be, that is the question. And it tends just to hit a little bit a little bit harder with a little bit more volume. Well, I'm at, to be or not to be, that is the question. Is the question. <laughs> and the amount of pitch you use tells the person listening, whether it's an audience or in conversation, how much weight you're putting on that important word and syllable. Yeah. So they then hear, okay, that's the most important word in the sentence. So, um, so yeah, we use we tend to use more pitch, particularly when a situation is heightened. <laughs> um, you hear people in a pub, you hear people in on the street when people are having a normal conversation, just talking about what they had for breakfast. Things will flatten, but when people start getting excited, the pitch really starts to come in as people get more in, more excited, more involved. It becomes interesting, and that's it's the same with American accents as well they will use more pitch when they get excited mm. that's fascinating um i think i remember i asked you a question once um mm -hmm. in one of our sessions at gsa and i said in terms of monotonal qualities between us and americans which one do you think don't no, no, not being in competition or anything but yeah. who's worse exactly and i think and you said we're you said well ollie we're just as bad as each other <laughs> to be perfectly honest yeah I think, yeah, I think we are, nowadays what's happening is we have, we have a habitual pitch range we all use. Yeah. When normally in speech we'll use a certain amount of pitch, unless some things get excited. Brits used to have more, we're shrinking. <laughs> we're getting into using two or three notes. Actually, no, we tend to use maybe five or six notes. Some Americans will use two or three. Yeah. Um, most people use about five or, sorry, using hit my headphone most people use about five or six yeah that's, that's so interesting to hear and of course did you think if somebody is naturally monotonal is that our the the choices for pitch and everything you know obviously it is a natural reaction but is it is it also like a a choice in a way that people like intend yeah. to use to use that i mean obviously it's going to sound like a bit of a dumb question but you know is it subconscious are we unconsciously just flipping between notes or is it more driven by an actual goal in a way so like we, we know what we're doing 
or we don't know what we're doing or is it kind of a mixture of both do you think um most of it is is habitual and unconscious in mm. everyday conversation it's habitual and unconscious and whether we're british or american we will change pitch because we want to stress a certain word our brain says that's the most important word in my sentence in my thought that's the word i'm going to hit we don't we're not conscious of that but mm. we so, but we do we from, from the meaning our brain has the thought and we it's interesting i mean the ways of conveying a thought it is writing it and you can physicalize it or you can speak it are the three main ways and so all we're doing with the mouth is we're articulating a thought mm. so the thought is, is set the brain has thought it we're not thinking about how we do it most of the time most of the time <laughs> most of the time sometimes yeah. we do we do really think about what we're going to say and there are times you can tell when people are really thinking about what they're saying as they're saying it <laughs> is that if you ever been in a meeting or just talking to somebody and you can just sort yeah. of say, okay so okay look it's the thing we want to we, we we want to express it we want i want to express this in a certain way <laughs> you yes. can see their brain ticking where some people yeah. just, some people just go blah, 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 and they just go yeah oh no no i didn't mean like that i didn't mean like that and yeah. there's always that that thing of like you know that that common phrase where our mouth speak you know we, we speak first thing second or our mouth is trying to keep up with our you know our, yeah mouth trying to keep up with our brain or brain to keep up with our mouth mouth keeping up with the brain mouth came up the brain yeah yeah always say first thing second um cool so one big question i'll ask you today is mm. about um the science of of the voice the science of of the voice box of the larynx of the whole thing which helps us to make noises and communicate with one another so how does it work what's it made up of how does it make make sound how do... okay so um what I'll do is try and avoid as much science as I can because the podcast is only an hour and I can spend the entire hour talking about how the, the language no, we, we, we can always go an hour and a half if you want to. <laughs> no, because it's multi-syllabic multi, multi muscles and I, I always need to sort of check them before I start talking about them in class. Um, I mean, basically, it actually comes down to um, impulse followed by sound. And it's about this communication. The brain has a thought that it needs to communicate with the voice. So the brain has a thought and it needs to express it through the voice. So what happens is the engine that powers the vocal communication is breath. So the brain sends muscles that um, control breathing. To, and what the brain then, it says, I need more breath because we take breath every day. Mm um everyone listening to this you're sitting there the way we breathe the way we take breath in and out it's completely unconscious the brain just does that it's the um i think it's autonomic system and i could well again it's uh, i'll have to look up look it up later go oh for god's sake i said it wrong um but it, it's automatic it we, do, we're completely unconscious we do it we do it in, we do it when we're asleep when we take when we speak we need more air because what happens is the out we use the outgoing air to create vibration and the vibration is shaped by what's called the vocal tract to make sound technically what happens is we take breath the breath starts to come out in the larynx the vocal cords um 
are brought together by muscles and cartilage, and then the vocal cords vibrate. Um, I mean, what it sounds like, if you have a microphone down there, is, I'll be very gentle with this. It sounds like a buzz. Yeah. And the buzz is then shaped and and moved around by the vocal tract, which is the, just the laryngopharynx, the pharynx, the mouth, the nose, the tongue, the lips. Because you can make a very, a very simple sound um, with vibration. Uh, and everything is about as open as it can be. And then just to change things to an R to a different sound. Uh, and for those who are just listening, all I did was I made my lips round and it just changed the vowel. You can change your tongue position. I, and if you try that, try that for yourselves, um, you can feel the tongue moving. Go from I, the tongue shifts position. Um, and that's, that's the basic of speech. That's how we make sound. Consonants, the little articulation things are made by the lips, the tongue, the soft palate, all coming together and do all sorts of interesting, interesting and wonderful things. Wow. I did that in about a minute and a half. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> yeah. No, that's fantastic. No, it, it's so interesting because I, biology was not my strong suit in school. Yeah. By, I, I hated that subject with a, with a passion. But um, obviously being an actor, you know, I'm always curious to actually know more about the science behind it and everything. And no, you explained it really yeah. well. I think that was really interesting to hear about the the process to which helps us to communicate, but also to make noises and also to sing as well. Um, I, I, I hope this, this next question doesn't sound a little bit like to grade or anything, but, uh, or sound a bit silly, but because um, all, all of us have, you know, nobody's not like the same. Everyone has like, you know, their own DNA, everyone's unique, their own self. Um, but we all have kind of similar voices, you know, everyone speaks you know, a lot of people speak with RP, a lot of people speak with a Northern accent, a lot of people speak uh, West Country or Southern American or or upper class New York or whatever it is. Um, so when it comes to the voice box, does it, uh, is it kind of a strain of everyone having a similar voice box or is everyone's unique in its own way and it's up to the environment in which we are in to shape how we sound? Mm -hmm. uh, I mean... Pretty much, we all make sounds the same way, which is that vibration in the, the larynx um, shaped and the sounds coming out. There are some languages which make sound on in-breath, mm -hmm. um, which are, they're called, they're click sounds. There's a number of them um, in some of the um, African language, African tribal languages. Um, I believe one of them, if I'm going to get it right, and I apologize if I don't, Osa which is spelled X-H-O-S-A, if you put that, if you had to put it into uh, Roman script, English English script, but it's, but the sound, that would be the sound of it. Um, and that's a Southern, Southern African one. Um, so then you can, you can add things on in breath as well. Mm. Um, but most English sounds are made with the sound on the out breath. Um, so yeah, we, we all have the same instruments. It's just how the accents decide to use them. Um, 
I mean, pe people's voices have different voices with RP. They can have exactly the same sounds with an RP, but will sound different. And sometimes it's just due to the shape of the mouth, how long the vocal tract is. Um, sometimes if people, I mean, some people, if they have their teeth changed or teeth fixed, mm. um, it changes their voice. It changes the tone of the voice because that's, it's, if you think of it, it's like an instrument. If you chopped a trumpet about a bit and shortened something or put a dent in something or made a different bulge, it would change the sound of a trumpet. Same way with our articulation. If you lose all your teeth, that will change things. Um, if you, <laughs> if you think of um, trying to speak when you've had some, again, dental work, and you've had anesthetic and your lips don't move very much, that changes the sound of the voice. <laughs> Is it, there's, that, because the lips aren't moving as much, it changes the sound. So yeah, yeah, we, have the, we all have the same tools, but it's just in, it's all put together in slightly different ways. Mm. Yeah, that's interesting because I, I sort of have, I have a naturally tight jaw, you know, my, my jaw doesn't, doesn't move as much as other people. Uh, and I had that pointed out by someone who used to teach it at um, GSA, someone called Katie Heath. Hi, Katie. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, yeah, and I just, I just thought, is that, is that common as I have a tight jaw? Is it, or is, and how does that affect vocal patterns? Am I in trouble? Uh, you're not in trouble. Many people have tight jaws. Some of it is just physical. Some, I mean, again, big generalizations. People who live in very cold climates, and some people who, who live in hot climates with a lot of insects around tend to keep the jaw fairly closed mm. because in cold climates you don't want the cold to go in um and in some hot climates you don't want to be breathing in maybe insects or other things um other things can happen people some people grind their teeth at night mm. and if people grind their teeth at night what, what will tend to happen is the big muscles of the jaw will tend to shorten or get tighter um and it can happen on one side and not the other. Um, other things that can happen is psychologically people hold almost as a mask. They don't, they are reluctant to let sound out um, because it's scary. Yeah. Some people don't, some people hold their jaws because they may have been either abused as a child and hit or they had a jaw injury. And they just they just hold everything because mm. they don't want they don't want to open or they can't. It's lots of things happen. Mm. Yeah, again, it's the, the not only is it the physical, but it's the psychological yeah. as well, which is fascinating. Yeah. Um, let's see. I'm just going to have a look at my questions here. We sort of rambled quite a few of these. So yeah, just to go back to the well, actually no, I'll do this one first. There's always a bit of debate as to you know because where we where performers when they before they go on stage they always do a vocal warm-up and you know just doing scales just doing a little bit of you know whatever mm -hmm. um yeah as such is there is there a warm down that artists should go through once they've come off stage and also what what would you say was a really good um treatment because a lot of people have vocal zones some people have throat yeah. tea some people have you know they have honey which they helps to soothe the throat um so yeah so what, what's the best way of um sort of derobing your voice after right. the show um 
even before we get to the warm down, not all actors warm up, mm. which, is, which, which, which frustrates the heck out of me because yeah. classical singers, they treat their voice like an instrument. They will always warm up. Most people in musical theatre will warm up their voices. Um, there are some actors who just don't, which drives the, um, drives me nuts. But then coming to warm down, um, if someone is doing a part which involves a lot of vocal extremes, like shouting, screaming, um, wailing, anything that involves what we call a vocal extreme, I will su strongly suggest to them that they do do a warm down after a show, which can involve humming, um, going up and down in pitch, sirening up and down in pitch on a hum, on an M or an N or an NG, um, slowing the body down, because the brain will be working 19 to the dozen often. With adrenaline, we just, it, everything just rockets along and it's just getting the body and the brain just to sort of slow down and center before um, going on and doing anything else. Um, it, depend, it depends on, on the vocal demands of the show as for the warm down. Um, if people have got s things like teas, I will sometimes get people to do those when voices are tired. Sometimes they can help. Um, I'll have people, I've had shows where I've been called phone by the stage manager and I've been in and I've had to go off and buy a steamer for an actor who's on, I mean, uh, one example is a Broadway show, one of the Broadway shows I was doing. I went and bought a steamer for the actor because unless I did that, they had a vocally demanding role, they would not have been able to get through the performance. Mm. And this is an actor who, who did warm up, who did warm down, and who did look after their voice. It's just, they just got a laryngitis. Yeah. Um, that happens. I've also worked with people who aren't trained performers and they have to do <coughs> a big show. And I just said to, um, I said to their people, <laughs> when, when the few times I can say that, I said to, the, to their, their personal assistant, we need to get a big humidifier for the room so the voice, at least before the beginning, is warmed up. So there'll be things I'll do, suggest um, have, a, have some water on stage or some tea on stage with them so that they can just keep the voice going. Wow. Is that and, yeah, because there was, um, uh, Richard Armitage did John Proctor a few years ago at the Old Vic, right. and uh, that was, uh, if it, it's available on digital theatre to watch on, on demand now, so if anyone wants to see it, I strongly recommend you have a, have a look. Um, you know, to do what he did eight times a week, he, his interpretation of Proctor was very, um, particularly towards the end in Act 4, when he has the line, because it is my name, uh, he took it very you could definitely hear him. Let's put it that way. He was, he was very, he was very, I don't want to sound, he wasn't screechy, but he was definitely shouting it out. Like he was like coming from a point of just dire frustration, grief, uh, just, just like desperation because like he's on his knees, he's signed a confession which he didn't want to sign. And it, he, his interpretation was that he came out with a, just all guns blazing and just completely bellowing the whole time saying, how dare you do this to me? How dare you do this? And there was um, an, an interview with one of his cast members where she said that at the end of the show, pretty much every night, especially on a two show day as well, that his, 
his dressing room table would just be full of vocal zones, throat yeah. tea, and just everything. It'd be like a like a like a vocal recovery bar at, the, mm-hmm. at his table every night. And you know, and I suppose with performances like that and you know like you said opera singers and stuff like that and of course with singers in the charts like Adele and um you know Taylor Swift and Ed Sheeran and people like that you hear about some of them actually having severe trouble with their vocal cords yeah. having cysts on their vocal cords and they've had to have surgery and there's always been that risk of if you do have this surgery there's a very good chance that you might not sing again or be able to speak yeah. properly and you know Stephen Hawking had a similar surgery which sadly cost him his voice and what we you know and he had to speak through a computer for the rest of his life um but in terms of so how how does that come about when when you like vocal cyst is it just the fact that it's just so much strain on the voice and eventually it just is it like its way of like digging its heels in and just saying look enough is enough or is it a natural thing um with pop singers many of them haven't done any vocal training Mm. so they don't know how to produce their voice so they can do it on a regular basis night after night after night for two hours and with a pop singer if you're doing an hour and a half to two hour show you are the singer yeah and there's many and there's many other things to do as well is they need to be able to hear themselves but often they don't use their breath as efficiently as they could so what happens is to get the volume or to get the work, they're having to they're using tension in the vocal cords, which means the vocal cords come together, and it's almost and almost it creates like a, a hard cyst. It's like a rubbing almost, where they think they come together hard. They sh- should come together quite softly. Instead of the more tension there is, they come together in a, in a more uh, they get more tense and they come together hard rather than soft and that creates the the place the, the place of swelling and then and then the system nodule um and it can happen to the best people it happened to julie andrews mm. who had an operation and she basically doesn't sing now oh. the operation didn't wasn't successful in that she didn't come out with a with a voice that that she can use Wow. She was doing a very a very difficult show eight nights a week, and did all her technique and warm up, and it was just, it ended up being, probably being too much. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, I didn't know that, and and you know it's it's right because you don't really hear her. She didn't sing much after the Sound of Music, and and very um, no, but uh, it was after Victor Victoria on Broadway. Oh, really? That that, that was the show that that did that and I don't know that she developed it and sometimes these things will disappear with rest so you can actually take six months and really not talk very much yeah. or or at all and sometimes the, the vocal swellings will go down yeah um, but often it comes from either a lack of training or approaching for actors it's approaching a moment of really heightened vocal use and not working out for themselves okay how am I going to do this to keep myself safe and Mm. sometimes I'll say to an actor you have to actually step out from being the character and and think of okay how am I preparing for this safely Mm. what what is the intention that's going to help me be able to do this with a minimum amount of tension 
I had to work, I was called into work on King Kong on Broadway. And I just went in and did one session with the young woman who's playing Fay Ray. Yeah. And she's going to have to scream up to eight times a week for, yeah. I think it's about five minutes. And that's a really hard thing to do. Wow. And I tr was trying to help the director and, um, and other people say, Look, well, this is stuff you can, this is what she may need to help her. And they didn't, the producers and the director, because then they, they don't think like we as actors or we as voice people do, they, they didn't realize it was that much work <laughs> and what they were asking her to do. Wow. In fact, that she had to scream five minutes eight times a week eight times a week and it's not just a little ah it's it's full-throated i've just seen a 30 foot gorilla scream <laughs> it's, yeah i mean um i mean yeah i mean directors will ask a lot of actors um oh the, the hardest thing right now is i'm hearing from um people who do video games actors who record voice for video games directors producers are making them do so many vocal extremes for seven hours a day people yeah. are wrecking their voices and potentially ruining their, ruining their careers because the, the directors want all these things and aren't willing them to aren't willing to say well let's just do 10 minutes of that they want it all day <laughs> no it's, it's, it's famous examples of um gary oldman Kiefer sutherland <sighs> tom hanks tim allen mm -hmm. You know the, those last two on Toy Story, famously. Uh, Tom Hanks tells a story that um, you know he'll be in the vocal booth and he'll been doing like his sixth or seventh hour of just going, <laughs> and you know, yeah. you know, as we all know, Woody is just this in, just this larger than life character. He he doesn't yeah. he doesn't seem to have a quiet moment in any Toy Story film, and when it does, it's very very short. Mm -hmm. But he said that yeah, but he's in his words, he said that you do it to the point where your diaphragm is busted your throat is raw the, yeah. the copy has just disintegrated because you've just spat all over it and 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 these guys are just in the booth have probably never done any vocal training yeah. probably don't know anything about it if never they haven't spoken to you they haven't spoken to anyone who knows this stuff yeah and they're just sitting there going okay well should we ask him to do it again? How much time we got? Another couple of hours. We've got another couple of hours. Oh, yeah, it'll be fine. So, hey, Tom, let's yeah. let's take another two hours. And he's there going, I, I, I can't do it. You know, I can't do it. Yeah. Um. And how do you feel about? Because I always get a bit. Because Hugh Jackman uh, talked about this when he did Les Mis a few years ago. Uh, that when he was on a rest day, he would have vocal rest days because he was singing pretty much all day every day. And he yeah. said that he would sort of turn into a monk once a week where he wouldn't. Where he wouldn't talk and then i don't know if that was just like a little hollywood story or, or something like that but do people no, do that pe people do do that the person i was talking about who lost lost their voice on on board when i went and bought them the seamer they they were outside the show basically not talking wow and monday and and, and they said monday is is a day off from the show but i don't go and talk to people I don't go and celebrate after the show I don't go and do all these other things I this is how I'm earning my living my voice and I have to look after it and I know if I don't I won't survive yeah and we all need to we all need to communicate we all need to yeah. we all have a voice um 
I just talking about just touching on something now. I, I rewatched the King's speech recently, and uh, about yeah, as as we all know, it's about speech therapy and having others to over, overcome a stammer. Um, I suppose stammer is a is a psychological thing as well. But in King George the Sixth case, it was more he had a his childhood wasn't great. He didn't have a good relationship with his father or his brother. You know, his brother left him completely in the shit when he married Wallace Simpson and said, "Okay, I'm not going to be the king." Go do it yourself. I'm gonna go off and be with my American girlfriend and completely just leave everything. So there is that psychological aspect to it as well. Um, can people be born with stammers, or is it a product of environmental environmental things? Um, I think it's a product of environment, but I don't I don't know enough. I'm not a um, Okay. A speech language pathologist enough to be able to say I know what it is. Okay. That's no, no, okay. I just, I just thought I'd throw yeah. that out. See if I, um, I mean, I've, I've worked with people on stammers, and often it will be clear enough in the text, or we work out, okay, th this is why the person stammers. But um, why it happens and on what consonants, we don't know. Often it's to do, often it's to do with stress. And a lot's going on in the brain, but it's it's a hard it's a hard thing. And, and people, when people have to, actors should think a lot about why the person's stammering before stammering, because it can sound stereotyped, and it it's a it's it's a little uh, the the right word is not coming to my brain at this time. <laughs> um, condescending. Mm. It's condescending to the character to do this, the, the um, stereotype stutter. And sometimes it's the brain can't find the words and the mouth is just trying to, it's all sorts of things. <laughs> and I'll leave it there. Yeah, <laughs> that's quite a nice sort of link into um, when you're, you're trying to communicate or you're trying to get the words out and your brain's yeah. thinking about all these different words and you end up just saying, and it's that I think that is. A lovely moment where you see a human brain just go uh, where all the like a house of cards it just falls down yeah. and going, right let's try that again and uh we pick ourselves up and do that um cool so i just how much time we have i've still got a bit of time uh i've just got a couple more questions for you if i may sure. um so we talked a lot we talked a lot about this science and um you know now about stammers and and vocal cysts and like looking after your voice um just to go back to your, yourself and your experiences of this of working you, you've worked with hundreds of actors over the over the years and uh if that's if that's okay to say um and uh I suppose I was thinking about today and thinking about because of the amount of people you've seen and the people you've worked with and the places that you've been um is there one like success story that you have or someone you worked with where you you went you went in, into a room you went into rehearsal with somebody and they've gone to you ben i'm really struggling here i don't know what to do i i can't get my voice to do this i can't get my voice to do that but then after you've worked with them they've gone into a show and just gone apt and just completely knocked it out of the park and that's made like a very very proud teacher mm -hmm. moment or coach for moment for yourself is there anyone or two stories that that stick out like that something that you're a success story of which you're mm -hmm. incredibly proud of to this day that you'll never forget it's hard to think of one or two actually so. um 
seven. I think I can think of seven. Um, I mean, I'm proud of the work I did with the kids in Billy Elliot and Matilda. Yeah. And it's not, it, it's not one, it, it's just getting these people who've never done acting voice in their lives to be able to shift their accent to um, a completely different thing for them. Mm. Um, and it's, it's the, I just being able to watch them do things and be proud that, yeah, you really sound as if you are British. And to have reviewers of Matilda saying, I can't believe these children aren't British. Um, and that and that's that's a nice thing to do because I really am working with people who've never done any of this work before. Um, to how to and again with the small Matildas, I had to teach them to speak Russian. There's a scene where they speak Russian yes. to a, to to a Russian guy. He comes he, he they come in. He's a Russian mafia, but he bought some cars off Matilda's dad, and the cars were broke down. And he's coming to do some nasty damage to the guy, and Matilda stops him by speaking Russian. And I got, I, I taught them Russian from day one, because, and they loved doing it. It became, it became the sort of like sweet treat at the end of the accent session to speak Russian. And one of them came into, one came up to me and said, "This woman stopped me at the stage door and, and said, are you Russian?" And I said, no, we're not. So because you sound as if, I'm Russian and you sound as if you're Russian. And I'm when they said to this, I'm going, yes. <laughs> um, just because it's just one of those things that to do something that audiences like or listen to and are convinced by. Yeah. That that's all that's always um and to do an accent with say American actors and it's a British accent and it's this is Geordie. And to have Geordie people come to the show and then come talk to the cast afterwards and saying, that was really quite good. Yeah. And for Brits to say that about Americans doing British accents is quite unusual. Yeah. Um, it's, it's little things like that. It's nothing huge more... I mean, the, there are, but to work with someone on an English accent and they've since gone on to have... Oscar nominated careers and the show they worked on with the English accent was their breakthrough. But ultimately it's about the actor and not about me. Because <laughs> it's a sort of, I can give them the stuff but then they have to do it and I can say yeah I've done a little bit towards you being up there where you are but it's a little bit. Yeah but it's it's part of their journey though. That's part it's, of it, it's, part, it's part of the journey and it's a small part yeah but yes it's nice. Good. I mean, and that's, I, I just, like you're saying just now, you know, you're, you're asking American kids to learn a Geordie accent. And, and that, I mean, you did it, you've done it, but, you know, I just, I can't imagine American kids on like the first day of rehearsals hearing them say like, why I, man, what's, what's going on? And you're just there going, this is how they speak. Yeah. <laughs> and they're going, what is this? It's like, but yeah. I think it's more the American adult actors were saying, saying, what is this? The kids just do it. The yeah. kids, they, they, they've got, their, their ears are so much, they're, they're more plastic to orally than we are as adults generally. Yeah. 
um, they generally pick up things more quickly. They lose it more quickly. So that's why I have to keep going in every two weeks or every week to give them notes. But uh, um, the, the adults, it's harder yeah. for the adults usually. Yeah. It's like, here we go, me again. Let's go back to yeah. let's go back to Geordie. And they're like, I do have it. It's like, well, we've got to get it back. We've got to get it back. Yeah, exactly. Uh, cool. And then I just think just finally today, mm-hmm. uh, final question. Uh, I was going to ask you about... Um, for like performer like people applying for drama school stuff like that but that's a bit of a that's a bit of a niche question now sort of really sort of cliche um i think it's just if someone is going for drama school and like doing this sort of thing they need to just feel relaxed and at ease and that's something that you talked talk to us about as well just feel relaxed and feel eased when you're training mm-hmm. and that and what you want what you want to achieve will come a lot more naturally and this is something i'm still learning myself is just to it's just to go into the room and just almost like surrender to surrender to the vibe, you know, just to the feeling in the room and just let things happen naturally and not, you know, don't, don't, don't let this, don't let your inner voice or inner critic just get, just be at you all the time and just say, look, you've got to get it right. You've got to get it right. You've got yeah. to get it. It's no, you have to just tell that's just, to, just to shut up and just say, look, we're here to, we're here to learn from the room and we're here to and i think you know you know um grania at gsa talks does a lot of work on michael Chekhov and mm-hmm. and um the feeling of ease and just i think actors learn more about themselves and do the best job when they're just at their most relaxed and not you know if they if they want to hit that note that was the always wanted to hit and they're relaxed they can do it it's an easier road if you want to get that scene the way you want to do it and you're relaxed it's an easier road and with the vocal chords as well would you agree with that oh completely um my wife is also she's a voice and shakespeare teacher and so when we go to shows we, we what we love to do is go to shows and then be able to come out and say oh that was really nice this and, this, and to not be watching it technically in making mental notes yeah. to have that just wash over and just sit in the back of the back of that, that 2%. Do the same. Do the same. <laughs> yeah that's that that two percent of the actor when they're working is aware is aware of actor working pick up the phone at this moment because that's a cue um to, to watch something and just have that little okay it's just it's going to go in the in the background we saw patrick stewart and ian mckellen and i think it was like a double bit it was like a reps thing they yeah, were doing with pinto it was No Man's Land and um, Waiting for Godot, wasn't it? Waiting for Godot. Yeah. We saw the No Man's Land and the two of them, no matter how heightened the scene was, they had they were so relaxed. Yeah. Even when the tension, the scene demanded tension, there was the tension, but it was no more than the scene demanded. And there was just this relaxation in what they were doing watching a relaxed actor working even when the character's getting uptight you, you know it's no it's a real person doing it when so many actors will work too hard mm. and it's all about the effort rather than the um and to, to create a great f- small green philosopher um do or do not there is no try <laughs> it's, it's it's a quote it's a yoda quote but it's absolutely true you can either do it and or don't do it and you fail but it's the trying it's the effort that sometimes gets in the way because effort involves oh 
too much tension, too much trying, and can stop us actually hearing what's being said to us. Because everything we say comes from an impulse. Something, some, something happens and we respond. So somebody says something to, to us and we respond. Sometimes as actors, we learn our lines and we say the lines, but we're not actually listening to what's being said to us. We're not doing the response. Mm. When we're relaxed, we can actually respond. Um, we, we call it talking and listening, mm. which, is, which is conversation. We talk and listening conversation. It's when we know what we're going because we've learned the lines, we know what's happening. We're not framing our response to what someone's saying. We forget that we're actually responding yeah that's that's the key that's the case and to watch the best actors that's all they do and to watch somebody really you can watch people listen i'm gonna now drop another another name we saw we saw david hyde pierce do labette with mark rylance mark rylance opens the show and it's a mark rylance monologue of about 10 or 15 minutes i think <laughs> and david hyde pierce is, sit, is, is sitting on stage and you can see that he's listening yeah. for 15 minutes. And that is so hard to do as an actor, but it's just, it's that whole sense of listening and responding. Yes. Yeah. It's, it's nice yeah. to watch that. Yeah, that's that's one big lesson I really took away from yourself and the other guys and GSA was, yeah. it's listening, you know, it's not just reacting, you're not just sitting there, okay. Okay, yeah. he's got two lines to go. He's got one line to go. Okay, now's my cue. No, it's like no. Yeah. Listen to what they are saying, and then that that in turn helps you get better. And then yeah. your then your reaction becomes a lot raw and much more authentic to the situation. Which is at the end of the day is what you want to be. You want to be mm -hmm. raw. You want to be authentic. You want to be believable. You want yeah. people to walk out of the theater or walk out of the cinema and say, "Wow, that I've just witnessed." a really fantastic piece of acting there. I totally believed him from the word go. That, and that's, you know, if that is the review, I'm like yourself, like when the kids, when they thought the kids weren't, were rushing and they were surprised when they weren't, it was like, yes. you know, it was yeah. that, that moment. Yeah. Um, and yeah, you took the words out of my mouth. I was going to ask you about that production of, because I was lucky enough to catch that production of Ian McKellen and mm -hmm. Patrick Stewart at, um, when they came to London to do it. I think you saw it on Broadway, didn't you? Yes. Yeah, and when they came to London and saw it, it was not only was it just a, I'll be totally honest, I, w I only went because it was Ian McKellen and Patrick Stewart. I didn't know anything about Pinter, I didn't know anything right. about but, but what an introduction, because it was those two actors who knew Pinter, you know, mm -hmm. who actually did work with him. And, you know, I'm, I can talk about Pinter for ages, so I'm not going to go off on one now, but, uh, but it was so lovely to hear the voices and to see that mysterious nature of it and I remember at the interval I just suddenly had all these ideas in my head and I was just going okay this plays about this this plays about that this plays about this and it was all from just the passion the determination and the hard work and the relaxation and feeling and easiness that was emanating from Patrick Stewart and Ian McKellen who they know how this works they've been doing this for a very long time and yeah and it shows and uh yeah that was just it was a beautiful beautiful night in the theater and to hear yeah. from it. and on that note i think that has a lovely point to end so um yeah ben this has been absolutely wonderful thank you so much for taking me through the the science the technical aspects the and the emotional aspects of not only training your voice but finding your voice and using it for the right purpose and yeah i've learned so much when 
in the hour that we've been going. This has been it's been so much fun. So thank you so much. Oh, it's it's been a pleasure. Yeah, absolutely. And I look forward to um, you'll still be at GSA next year, right? Ah, uh, I hope so. Well, hopefully, I'll. Uh, hopefully. Yeah, so I'll hopefully I'll see you, hopefully in person, in class. Yeah. From October, and I look forward to uh, catching up with you then. I'll see you in October. Exactly. Cool. If you just hang around, I'll just say goodbye to you one to one after I finish the recording and uh, sure. go from there. But once again, man, thank you so much. This has been this has been <laughs> awesome. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you.